Clarence Mealy is known as the anxious achiever. She's written a best-selling book and hosts a podcast with LinkedIn, both named The Anxious Achiever. She recalls a clear turning point when she realized her strengths as an anxious achiever, a moment when everything changed. I was invited to give a speech to my alma mater, Brown University, in 2013. And this was an address to a selected group of senior graduating women and their mentors who were graduates like me. I talked in the address about my experiences starting at age 19 with depression, anxiety, and what eventually came to be diagnosed as bipolar disorder. Maura was nervous. And not just because she says her mind is always buzzing with anxiety. A decade ago, we did not talk about mental health as openly as we do now. But I gave the speech and it was raw. But the message of it was, when I learned how to work in the way that tapped into my gifts, but mitigated and built infrastructure around my mental health challenges, I soared. This moment marked a new path for Maura. I felt like Oprah after that speech. People were standing, they were cheering, they were crying. And it was such a powerful, amazing moment for me of like, wow, not only have I learned a lot in my life about how to make work work, other people feel this way too. In the years since this moment, she has shifted her career to work with her mental health rather than against it. She asked herself some tough questions and in the end, came out on the other side stronger than ever before. This is the Turning Points Podcast. I'm your host, Francis Lease. I'm a licensed clinical therapist operating as a life coach. I travel around the globe offering healing, but Boston is my home base. This podcast brought to you by Point32 Health, which is a New England-based nonprofit health and well-being company is all about navigating the ups and downs of your mental health journey. This week on the podcast, we're talking about how we can reach our goals and professional ambitions without sacrificing our mental health. How do we reframe our professional lives so that anxiety is not fueling your drive? Samora, you proudly claim the title as the Anxious Achiever, and you've written the highly acclaimed book, The Anxious Achiever, Turning Your Biggest Fears into Your Leadership Superpower. And you also host a podcast from LinkedIn for anxious achievers. What does it mean to be an anxious achiever? Anxious achievers hear those two words and they're like, oh, wow, that's me. (laughs) So when you're an anxious achiever, you are a high performer. You're a high achiever. You are goal-oriented, career-oriented, outcomes-oriented, right? You might be the person who is a little bit perfectionistic, right? Who is really invested in doing a good job and getting external feedback that you're doing a good job, going that extra mile, and really taking off boxes of external success, right, in your chosen field of work or study or life. The problem is you lean on anxiety to help you keep moving forward. Anxiety could be stemming from how you were raised with extremely high expectations, right? Or a sense that if for some reason you underperformed in the family, bad things were going to happen. So you learned to overperform and it becomes a cycle, right? I overperform 
I get praise. I feel like things might be okay for now, but there's that next goal. There's that next hurdle. I better do it again. And it becomes a cycle. Or maybe like me, you're driven for some reason. You're just an anxious person. Anxiety is almost like your oxygen, right? And maybe it's even partially responsible for where you've gotten to. I talk to so many people who say, you know, my anxiety motivated me to get where I am today. And that can be, like you said, something that we can be grateful for in our lives. The problem is eventually the toll is going to come due, right? And eventually your body, your brain, your relationships, your stomach is going to be like, hi, wait a minute, we're exhausted. Yeah, because you're pretty much like an overdrive. Like you're working at max capacity day in and day out. And our bodies aren't really made to work at that capacity for long periods of time. And sometimes when you're an anxious achiever, actually, you're underperforming and not working at capacity because you're so anxious about the outcome that you procrastinate or you avoid, right? Because the stakes feel so high and it feels so impossible. Mm. You identify as an anxious achiever. Did you initially embrace or reject that identity? And what was that journey like for you? I've always been really comfortable with my mental illness, to be honest. It's a piece of who I am and my identity at this point, because it is something that I actively manage every single day. And so I was very comfortable with the fact that I'm just wired a certain way, it seems. I've been through every treatment. I've seen a million doctors. I've tried a million medications, every different modality. And my baseline is still pretty anxious, even though I've really come to manage my depressions and my bipolarity. But like the anxiety just seems baseline for me. I always joke I vibrated at 12. And I made peace with that. And I started to notice that my experience of life and work was really different from other people. I found that very interesting and started to study it and explore it more broadly. Yeah, I think going through the acceptance phase, because I think when we resist certain realities of our situation, that can compound the issue, right? So it's like part of the journey is like, okay, let me get curious. If I believe this to be true, what would life look like for me? And how would I move differently? And what safeguards can I put in place for myself to make sure that I do thrive in this area? But I think that the rejection process can really compound it. It's the curiosity piece that you just hit on, I find really inspiring and instructive. You know, everyone experiences anxiety. It's a natural human emotion and we experience it, you know, some people more than others and some people in a disordered way and some people in an everyday kind of way. But when you get curious about why you're anxious, it can really be instructive. And so many of us in the workplace don't get curious. We're anxious. We act it out on each other. We act it out on our team. We micromanage them. We control them. We're perfectionistic. We gatekeep, right? We overwork. And if you can stop and get curious when you feel that anxious feeling, it can really change things for the better. Yeah, because it's just feedback. Like every emotion is is feedback. And it's like, what is it trying to tell me in this moment? Why is it coming up? What can I do with it? What pauses do I need to make to move through that? Sometimes you're anxious and you're acting anxious because you've been doing it all your life and it's a habit you need to break. An important first step is to become aware of what triggers your anxiety. We each have different anxiety profiles and unique ways that anxiety shows up in our lives. 
what may activate or trigger my anxiety might totally not make you anxious at all, right? Like flying is a great example. Some people, the minute they get on that plane, they're almost in panic mode. Their body is in a panic mode. And some people are just, you know, watching the movie and chilling out and it's fine, right? So that's the first thing is understanding what personally makes your anxiety go up. For some of us, it's social anxiety. It's social situations. It's a fear that when we get in front of other people, they're going to judge us. For some of us, it's about being in a situation that brings back a bad memory or triggers something from our past or makes us fearful, right? For some of us, it's that we're perfectionistic. And we think that if we don't constantly achieve to that very high standards we've set ourselves, we're going to be bad. People aren't going to like us. We're going to get fired. (laughs) A lot of us get stuck in thought traps, right? We have this catastrophic thinking or we are very judgmental. And again, this this stuff can have deep roots. And so we all have different anxiety profiles in terms of what makes us anxious and then how we act it out. And what's really instructive is when you look at a team, people may have very different anxiety profiles on a team and maybe acting out anxious behavior on each other just reflexively. And then it sort of like breeds the anxiety. And so again, it's life-changing to build that self-awareness and be like, you know what? This person makes me anxious. I think about negotiations a lot. We get really anxious when we're in a negotiation, right? It really puts a lot of our self-worth on the line And understanding what's making us anxious before we go into that negotiation, think about it. You're going to get a much better outcome because you can plan. And so I like to think of it like that. Yeah, because what you can do now is take everything that's already going on in your head and just put it on there and say, what are some of the worst case scenarios and what are the best case scenarios? And these are the steps in between, all the things that I'm thinking about. Once you take it out you allow it to leave your body and your mind and then you can go in there versus bringing, it's like bringing a room full of people with you, right? With the anxiety, you bring a room full of people with you into the meeting and everybody's crowded on top of each other. Everybody's speaking at once with each other, you know? And no one agrees. Yeah, no one agrees, right? You're like, oh my God, you're sitting there sweating and everything. For me, it was like the social piece because I'm a natural introvert. So going to networking events, I'd have to plan it out. What am I going to say? And I dreaded going to some of these events, even all the things that I've done so far, it still kind of gets to me. I still have to talk myself off the ledge, so to speak, into that room. <laughs> My first book was called Hiding in the Bathroom, How to Get Out There When You'd Rather Stay Home. <laughs> you might enjoy it. But it's all about, like you said, accepting and loving yourself for your introverted, socially anxious self. You probably have to network differently than other people. Your approach at a conference for three days in Orlando might be different than someone who doesn't have that social anxiety and who isn't as introverted. That's great. As long as you know you can play to your strengths. I'm curious, which profile do you identify with and how do you approach your work to accommodate your needs? Oh, gosh. I mean, I identify a little bit with all of them. And I think a lot of us do, right? And it's sort of generalized anxiety disorder. We may have free-floating anxiety that likes to attach on to different things. The piece that I have really had to work on for me the most is managing a fear of loss from my childhood that shows up as anxiety. And there's a chapter on this in my book about how we bring our childhood hurts forward. 
that shows up a lot in my work, anxiety around money, anxiety around scarcity, anxiety around loss, anxiety, even when I travel, as I mentioned, that the people I love, something bad's going to happen. And so my real theme of my anxiety has been trying to stem the fear of loss that can show up a lot. Mm. Yeah, because I feel like one of the things that we don't talk about is loss, right? Different kinds of loss. And so a lot of us don't have the a breath of practice with having those conversations because if we talked more about it and normalized some of this stuff, then it'd be maybe a bit more manageable, right? I often work with salespeople and it's interesting how many salespeople have a lot of anxiety around money. I mean, most of us have anxiety around money, right? Because money, <laughs> Because of the role that money plays in our society, it's like so much about our identity and our worth in this society. And so salespeople who have anxiety around money and that fear of loss or scarcity can really change and actually do so much better in their role as salespeople if they look at that anxiety around money and how it makes them feel and think and act around transactions with money, which is a salesperson's job, you know? So this stuff shows up in our day-to-day life. And again, when we understand it and manage it, it changes everything. Yeah, it's, it's changing the relationship. Like, how are you relating to this thing called anxiety? Yeah. Even if we understand our mental health boundaries, our environment plays a key role. We've been seeing phenomena like burnout, quiet quitting, the great resignation, Now many workplaces still grapple with the big questions that can affect our day-to-day lives and how those decisions impact our anxiety levels. Do we return to the office or work remotely? Will artificial intelligence help or hurt my job? I asked Maura about how she changed her relationship with work to find more balance with her own mental health. When I was in politics, that was a pretty clear place that I was not going to last in because the constant putting your armor on and showing up for battle everyday environment of national politics was simply too difficult for my very sensitive, raw soul. Frankly, corporate America was too. When I was able to realize that the thing that keeps me mentally healthy is agency over my own time, everything changed for me at work. Mm. For me, I realized that me staying mentally healthy for my family was I got to be able to have as much management of my own schedule as possible. I think that you have to be honest with who you are and what is going to be an environment that enforces anxiety and what's going to be an environment that keeps you stable. I had such good fortune to be able to interview Dr. Michael Freeman from UCSF a couple of times, and he's one of the world's leading psychiatrists, and he specializes in bipolar high achievers. And he is very, very emphatic that when you have a serious mental health condition, and this could be a temporary anxiety, it doesn't mean you have to be like me and have a lifelong issue, that you have to look at your environment holistically. And when it comes to work, are you in an environment that messes with your sleep, messes with your appetite, doesn't let you move your body, constantly triggers that anxiety profile, right, is overstimulating when you're bipolar, maybe even 
inspires grandiosity and impulsivity. And so I think it's really instructive. So data is pretty clear that work makes us less mentally healthy. It's really important, I think, for any company, any boss, any organization that wants to deal with mental health at work to think of it occurring at three different levels within an organization. The first level is that, as you know, mental health is very intersectional. It's reflective of everything that exists in the social systems we live in. It's racist, it's patriarchal, it's biased, it's ableist. And when people who feel that they aren't the norm get to work, they face bias, they face poor treatment, they become anxious, they become depressed. I always tell people like it's not in your head. And that exists at a systemic level. Then there's the team level. The old adage that you, you join a company, but you leave a boss. Most of us have a team. And if we have an anxious team led by an anxious boss or an anxious team member who's sort of infecting things, that can be really detrimental to our mental health. And then there's the personal level. All this stuff feels very personal. And so you may be having mental health struggles that come from your chemistry or your background and are exacerbated by conditions at work. And you need to do some personal work on that. And so I just like people to think about those three levels because it's really important when we think about the workplace. It's not fair to give people access to therapy and say, go fix yourself. Yeah, because it's not an individual thing. I can think back when I first was starting into really my career and I had a boss who was incredibly anxious and I was a bit opposite that. I'm more of a like low key kind of person. And we used to just, we used to feed off of each other pretty terribly because of the fact that like I moved at a different pace, she moved at a different pace and it caused a lot of tension. And we had to have a real conversation. At that point, you have to have like a a really difficult conversation about, okay, well, how do we work together in a way that is more palatable for us, right? So that we can actually do the work. What'd you do? What happened? We had a conversation about it. And part of me was like, okay, you know, Francis, stop being petty. (laughs) Stop being a little petty. (laughs) And meeting her halfway and her allowing me the space to work the way that I usually work and how I like to support my clients. And she understood that like, okay, you have a different way of doing things. It just means the pace is different. And so we did find a happy medium, but it was a, it took a while to get there. But just like you said, there are ways in which that we can actually navigate these conversations way sooner. How can employers promote better mental health in their workplace? Because as you just said, it's not just the worker, right? It's a whole system that needs a bit of an overhaul. And you talk a lot about the leader's toolkit for managing anxiety and about how to create a psychologically safe environment where someone can be themselves. Can you talk a bit more about that? Absolutely. You know, I do focus on leaders because I think that people with influence in an organization have power to unlock better mental health for everyone, including themselves. A lot of managers come to me and say, I have this person, you know, a a young millennial or Gen Zer, and they're so anxious. And they're always telling me how anxious I am. And it's annoying. And I ask them to take a beat and try to have a little empathy. And then also like get in touch with maybe they're anxious too. And then also remember that like work is work and using anxiety is not an excuse, right? I think we, to your point, we both have to compromise here. 
companies need to do three things. There's a nonprofit called Mindshare Partners that I really recommend, has a lot of great resources, focuses on mental health at work. But, you know, there is that systems level change and that's benefits and access to care, right? There's such a shortage of mental health professionals and good healthcare coverage. Also, paying people fairly, right? Creating a workplace where you could take a bathroom break without getting punished, The Surgeon General actually released a framework last year about better mental health at work. And part of the framework was basic equity things that hopefully every workplace would have, but honestly, very few do, which is treating people with respect, treating people from an equitable lens, paying people a living wage, et cetera, et cetera, giving them healthcare benefits. Okay. So that's the systems level change. What teams and leaders can do is create psychological safety by modeling their own humanity. You can say, I don't know. You can not try to control things and let other people do the work and trust in the process, right? That creates psychological safety. You can tell people when you're not sleeping well. You can tell people when a deadline is making you a little bit anxious, being a little human, and then also hopefully creating space for other people to feel safe, to be a little bit vulnerable with you. And so managers can be powerful in that. Managers also often are feeling squeezed right now thinking, what am I supposed to be my team's therapist? No, you have to know how to help people who need a therapist. And then I think that individually, it's about knowing that you have that access, right? And not being afraid to ask for what you need, whether it's I need to leave early for therapy or I do much better working from home when I'm on deadline. Can I work from home this week? Again, having the ability to ask for things in a professional way that support your mental health. Yeah, I love all those things. And I think part of this process, sometimes just a softness can really just invite people to become more comfortable. And it's through that vulnerability. Once you're able to, like you said, model a lot of these things will help relax people a little bit. You'll actually get better outcomes from your workers if they're not feeling all that pressure. It's ingrained societal stereotypes of what leadership is, right? But what I try to ask people to remember is that the most powerful leaders are strong and competent, right? Your job as a leader is to give people that holding environment, right? You don't have to pretend like you know everything. You can't control a pandemic. You can't control companies going through layoffs, But you can control what you can and give people a holding space, but also be a little bit vulnerable so they trust you, right? And so how do you get that balance of being competent and strong, but being vulnerable? It's a lot like what we aim for in parenting, to be honest. Yes. And it's powerful. Now, do you have any examples of any workplaces that support their employees' mental health and kind of how they do that? I think the workplaces that honestly support employee mental health check those three boxes. They pay people fairly, they have good benefits, and they honor human dignity, which again, sounds like every place should be that way, but we know that's not true. They invest in managers. They honor managers. Because honestly, when a manager is stripped of resources, when a manager who probably statistically is also in a caregiving phase of life is unable to take care of their own self and their employees because they have no time, money, or not enough staff, 
or they're in a toxic environment, right? And then from a personal level, they foster a culture where people's need for agency is respected. Agency looks like different things to different people, but we as humans cannot stay motivated. We cannot stay healthy if we don't feel that we have some control over both our destiny and what our workday is going to look like. So those elements are so important. So how can listeners approach their work in a way that also honors their mental health? What changes do you suggest for them where they can start? I think that they need to think about infrastructure. What do I mean by that? You know, it's the scaffolding that keeps you performing, keeps you healthy, keeps you mentally as healthy as you can be. And as you know this from your work, that giving people constancy and routine that supports them, giving people resources, you know, when people feel alone, right, it's really bad. So when you are feeling like you're a bit mentally fragile or you have a condition like I do, what is your infrastructure? How's your sleep? How's your eating? How's your commute? How's your body movement? Are you on Zoom all day and getting so stiff and constricted and exhausted? That's not good for your mental health. So how are you able to build an infrastructure in your day to move, to get outside? How are you able to build support in terms of people, right? Do you feel that there are people in your life, both at work and outside of work, who you can lean on and talk to and get advice from? Do you have enough income to be able to take care of yourself. All of this infrastructure is actually really important for anyone, but it's really, really important if you manage mental ill health or mental illness, I think. And so you really need to take it seriously and learn how to create the infrastructure that's right for you. I love the metaphor of the infrastructure because it really gives me a nice visual of like, okay, if I were to build a home, what would I include in my home? What are the things that I need to make this home feel loving and safe and relaxing and also empowering and just inspired, right? And what are the things that I need to put in place for me to be able to do that, both at work and at home? And I think without the infrastructure, it's going to be very, very hard to get through some of the challenges at work. But once you have the infrastructure and you practice it regularly, all those challenges that come up, you're like, okay, I, I know that I have the skills to manage them. And there might be days where, you know, you might fall short on managing it and that's okay. I always say tomorrow's a new day, so we'll start again. But the infrastructure is so important and I feel like that's a great place to start to begin to find that balance between work and life and your mental health. I think the other thing I want to say is that we all have tells when our mental health is getting a little wobbly. A lot of people, right, your appetite might change, your need for sleep might change, you might be waking up at 3 a.m., you might find that you're irritable, your body might be jumpy. Again, learn to understand your tells. Everyone has different ones because that's a signal that something needs attention. Yeah. Those little nudges. We get whispers all the time. So throughout all these experiences that you've had with learning to care for yourself, what were some of the biggest lessons that you learned about caring for your own mental health? It was really about the compromises I was willing to make and the compromises I wasn't willing to make. I think that when you have mental illness, again, you need infrastructure in a serious way. 
you need to try to create a work life that keeps you healthy. For me, it was having the flexibility of time. And I cannot tell you how serious I am and also how much I've given up to be able to have that. I wanted to be a corporate executive. I wanted to be a big deal. And I back then wasn't able to make that happen and still sort of take care of what I needed and honor my temperament, which is fussy. And so I went out on my own. And a lot of people would say, you're nuts. Like going out on your own is way more stressful. That was a compromise I was willing to make because it gave me flexibility over my time, even though it cost me in other ways. And other people stay in stable jobs that maybe aren't as exciting as they may have imagined because that gives them the infrastructure and that honors their mental health and they make compromises there. So I don't say this to say, if you have mental illness, you can't be amazing because all of my work is about being amazing, but you got to learn how you can be amazing and where. Mm, I love that. Yeah, there is a trade-off and sometimes that trade-off is really worth it for the overall How can our listeners reframe their own mental health journey as a superpower? So mental illness is not a superpower. The work that we do and the people we become when we learn how to manage it and treat it and honor it is a superpower because we become self-aware. We become empathetic. We learn how to be mindful instead of mindless. And that makes us better people, better leaders, the kind of leaders that people want to be with. But you know, a lot of us with mental illness or who are neurodivergent, we're really creative. We see frameworks that other people don't see. We're willing to take risks other people won't take. We are pattern thinkers. We have really finely attuned antennae for other people because of what we've been through ourselves. We have compassion. So we have superpowers. And it's really the journey about learning, again, what kind of environment is going to exercise my superpowers and support the places where I'm vulnerable. I love that. Find the places that don't dim your light. I don't want anyone's light to be dimmed. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) me neither. Thank you, Maura. This has been an incredible conversation, and I trust that our audience really got a lot from this episode in regards to reframing their own superpower and connecting to workplaces that allow them to shine. Thank you so much, Francis. Listeners, don't dim your light. As I'm reflecting on this episode, these are the lessons that are coming to mind. First, recognize if anxiety is fueling you. Eventually, this will catch up to your mind, body, and spirit. Get curious with your anxiety. Invite this feeling in as a friend as opposed to wrestling with it as a threat. What information could this emotion be sending you? This conversation will be life-changing for you and strengthen your self-awareness. But also know this is not only an individual challenge. Leaders can change the experiences of their people at work. Even an anxious coworker can trigger anxiety. That can impact your sense of safety and connection, ultimately making it a more challenging workplace. So do an audit of what matters the most to you in your life and ask yourself the difficult question of how can you live in a way that pours into your mental health versus depleting it. (music) 
That's all for this episode. Join us next week when we talk about challenges along the road to finding a therapist who resonates with you. There's a pre-work that you have to do when you're looking for a therapist. And I think the first step is coming to that decision for yourself that this is a resource that you want to try out. Follow Turning Points wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. If you found this episode helpful or meaningful, please leave us a rating, review, or even tell a friend about the show. It really helps get the word out. Visit globe.com forward slash turning points for more information on mental health care and resources. Thanks to our production team at Pod People and Fuse, Amy Machado, Brian Rivers, Danielle Roth, Michael Aquino, and Shay Woditz. And special thanks to Point32 Health, the Studio B team at Boston Globe Media, and Hill Holiday. Point32 Health is committed to connecting the community to personalized solutions that empower healthier living. <laughs>